If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. I came with this idea of ecological violence essentially to try to point it out to the fact that what's happening in this region in terms of, let's say, depletion of natural resources or pollution or transformation of our land use, all those things is not just something that is happening to the environment. Because again, the environment, the forests, the rivers are not just the background for human actions. They are beings and they participate in the daily lives of people. So ecological violence is not just about what happens to the environment, but as you know, like ecology is about relationships. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Ruiz Serna, who is an anthropologist and ethnographer of war, rural worlds, and human-animal relationships. He is the author of When Forests Run Amok, War and Its Afterlives in Indigenous and Afro-Columbian Territories which describes the way that war becomes an experience that extends beyond the human, affecting many other beings with whom people share the forests and rivers that make up one of the most biodiverse places in the world. What we call in the United States, states or, or province here in Canada, where I live, are called in Colombia departments. So I work in this region in Chocó, which is the department located in the Northwest uh, Colombia and borders the Pacific Ocean. We have like a very important river, which is called the Atrato River, which actually was one of the rivers who, a river to whom or to which rights were granted. So this is like a, a, a river, which is a legal personhood with a particular set of rights. The region where I work is like the lower and more 
northernmost course of the river, which is called the Atrato. And the region is the Bajo Atrato. It's very close to the place where uh, Panama and the South America connect. And it's actually like a very aquatic landscapes because besides like forests, we have a lot of, of, of tropical rainforests. It's a biodiversity hotspot. We have a lot of rivers, but also several kinds of swamps, lagoons, lakes. So um, this is also one of the uh, more rainy regions in the world. So we will you will find like water everywhere, like even uh, underneath your skin because there's so much humidity. It's constantly raining. You are sweating. So water is like a key component of of this of this landscape. So this region during the 16th and 17th centuries when the Spanish, the conquistadores arrived, they had a lot of trouble trying to uh, settle in this region. Essentially, they complained a lot about the temperature, about the forest, about climate, about humidity. So they didn't find this place was suited to settlement. Like white Spaniards found like very hard to stay there. But at the same time, they found that this region were, was full of gold. Essentially, there were some uh, gold mines, but those mines are what it's called uh, alluvial mining. So this is essentially extraction of gold from creeks and rivers. So not necessarily like mines in, like in the traditional way. So the Europeans, the Spaniards, so like, uh, found this, these mines and they wanted to obviously like take advantage of, 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 those, of these minerals. And at the beginning, they started to use indigenous peoples as a workers to exploit these lands. But the thing is like, in essence, there was a set of laws that the Spanish crowd issued that prohibited the enslavement of indigenous peoples. And also because of the different diseases that indigenous peoples were getting, they were seeing a, a decrease, a a high decrease in the population of indigenous people. So what the Spaniards did was essentially to bring people from Africa, enslaved people. So at the beginning of the 19th century, there was like, a, I don't know, there are some figures, I cannot like essentially tell the uh, exact numbers, but thousands of enslaved people came from Africa and they were the ones working in those alluvial mines. The thing is like, these mines were exploited by these uh, enslaved people, but what the Spaniards did was to allow these enslaved people to work on their own. So meaning like you have to reach a particular quota, or a particular amount of gold that you have to give me every month or every two months, and you, you do that in the time I give you. So essentially because there was not a lot of presence of white settlers, the African people who was brought to this region enjoyed certain autonomy because they worked on their own, they were enslaved, it's true, but there was not this constant presence of white settlers, of people like constantly supervising the work that, that they have to do. So what these peoples did was essentially like work for many, many hours trying to exploit their gold for their own. And they organized in this way that they collected enough work to pay to uh, the white settlers like the quota, to reach the quota that was asked for them, but also to purchase their own liberty, their own freedom. So there was like a many, many cases in which like people 
prefer to work and work very, very hard in order to purchase their own liberty. And this is like the, the method that most people follow in order to get liberty. So many of these people, once they purchased the liberty, they decided to uh, go elsewhere, these mining, mining sites. And they started to settle upstream the many rivers of this region because there was this abundance of forests or fish, but also game animals. They came to establish their own settlements, to build alliances with indigenous peoples of this region. And they did that in a way like uh, that puts them or gives them certain autonomy. So on one hand, no many presence of white settlers, then uh, abundance of forests, rivers and resources. So people enjoy a certain autonomy and these black communities enjoy certain degrees of autonomy that were not achieved by any other like enslaved populations in other parts of, of Latin America. Mm. That was like a kind of advantage for them because that autonomy allowed them to become some kind of like a, 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 a solid peasant society. But at the same time, because of that lack of presence of authorities also led this region to be entrenched in, 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 in situations of high poverty and marginalization because the state or the crown or governors never, never did like a strong presence in this region. So the autonomy allowed these people to live and to keep or to develop, if you want, their own like cultural traditions, their own institutions, but at the same time set them apart from the mainstream society in Colombia. Hmm. And so as you share, a lot of historians have named this community what's called rainforest peasantry or a post-abolition black society that, unlike others in the colonial Americas, attained high levels of autonomy. And certainly there are layers of nuance there as well. To get to the heart of your work, you emphasize the forms of violence perpetrated against indigenous and Afro-Colombian territories that exceed that which is conceptualized as environmental damage. So what might constitute as environmental damages from wars that mainstream narratives and war studies might talk about? And what do you mean when you speak to this ecological violence that blurs the lines between the natural or the cultural and actually sees war as more of a structure rather than an event? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things about the deep relations and connections people have with their land or what they conceptualize as territory is the fact, one of the things important about this is that there's not a clear boundary between people and the surrounding worlds in the sense that there's a deep relationality, a deep interconnection between your well-being as an individual, as a human individual, but also the well-being of uh, the large community of life or the large community of beings you share life with in this particular region. So the thing is like, like the example I give you about the rituals performed with, with the belly buttons is the idea that the territory in some way becomes also, uh, it's, it's not just like a background for human actions. It's a territory of life because it's what sustains people's modes of being, like the economic activities, like all symbolic or religious institutions. It's a territory of life, but for people, it's also a living territory. So that means that the land, the river, the forests are more that uh, backgrounds of people's actions and that the territory is conceived as, as an entity. And people relate with the territory, with the forest, with the beings, including spirits, animals, as, as, as persons. 
because they are also endowed with particular degrees of agency and personhood, like, like, just like people do. So the thing that the, the territory is a living territory is, is, is important because it's not just a matter of like, it's a living entity, but it doesn't mean that it behaves in the ways people do. So the kind of being that the territory is, is not necessarily that similar to the kind of existence a human being has. So the question is not like, uh, or for me, like the productive question here was not if the territory is or not a living entity, but rather try to understand the kind of being the territory is, the way like the territory manifests its own ways of being. So it's not like wondering about or not thinking about rivers or forests as natural resources, but rather like the, what kind of entities they are at as being entities, what kind of things they can do. So the thing is like, given this, and given the, the, the kind of things that I saw, like consequences of war, I, I came to understand that the kind of violence performed in this region, you cannot always like set a clear boundary between what's happening, what's going on with people, and what is going on with the territory. So I came with this idea of ecological violence, essentially to try to point it out to the fact that what's happening in this region in terms of, let's say, depletion of natural resources or pollution or transformation of land use, all those things is not just something that is happening to the environment. Because again, the environment, the forest, the rivers are not just the background for human actions. They are beings and they participate in the daily lives of people. So ecological violence is not just about what happens to the environment, but as you know, like ecology is about relationships. So ecological violence is about how the relations that help sustain life in the territory are hindered, how work affects those set of relationships that bring territory into being, that bring life to the territory. So even an event like depletion of natural resources, deforestation, they have like an environmental consequence, but the language of environment damage was not enough to understand this deep connection between people and the territories. So violent transformation of the landscape, like the change of rivers or forests, that trigger another set of relations between people and their surrounding worlds and trigger other set of relations that are much more than instrumental or economic relations. So one of the things that I, I heard from the beginning I started to do my work there was that many shamans were complaining about the difficulties they had trying to hunt and to get game animals. Essentially, they say like because of the presence of armed people in the forest, because of the attacks that the army did, all that made the spiritual protectors of game animals angry. So essentially, it was a lot of anger from these spirits and those spirits decided to keep game animals away from people. So hunters had a lot of trouble trying to hunt in because the spiritual protector of these animals decided to keep those animals at bay, to keep them far from people. And they were complaining about, okay, this is provoking some kind of problem because we have not enough food. Our uh, sovereignty has been compromised because of what's going on. But the thing is like the way they were framing what was going on was not 
just in matters of damage to the environment or damage to our human rights or our human right to go to the forest or our human right to, to food. It was rather like a damage to the guardians of game animals. So how can you make sense of that kind of damage if you only focus on the environment or if you only focus on those spirits as cultural beliefs? So there was something deep here in the words, like they were conveying the experience of war in a language that had no equivalent in, in, in the legal framework because we address what happens to the territory in terms of environmental damage or in terms of human rights damage. And again, what they were telling me was like something that exceeded these kind of categories. So it's psychological violence because it's about other uh, than human forms of suffering. And it's about instances in which humans were not the only victims, but also were not the only actors. Therefore, like, were instances in which the allocation of events to either natural or cultural domains was not neat, was not simple. So, for instance, in the case of these spirit, uh, spiritual protectors of animals, like, who or what has been harmed by those military attacks? So where do you locate this harm? Is in the world itself or is uh, within the cultural representations that people have about nature? So the thing is like, when I frame it in terms of ecological violence is to think about the set of world making relations between different kinds of sentient beings, including people, but also what we call animals. So by ecological violence, I refer essentially to the fact that world's uh, destruction and suffering it's also embodied by other than human beings. And that, that suffering transforms the conditions that sustain like the worlds and the associations that humans and those non-humans make possible in these particular places. Mm. And the last element here is like when understanding, for instance, something like the environmental damage of war, often that is framed with, uh, within the language of collateral damage, like unintended results of war. Mm. And something that is very important here is that violence against nature or violence against the environment is constitutive to war. It's a condition to wage war. And it's even more the case in a region like or in Colombia or many other regions around the world where irregular warfare is waged in forests. So there's no such a thing as collateral damage, like violence against the environment, against forests, against rivers, against animals. is a condition. It's the way, it's a condition to the waging of war in many parts of the world. Yeah. So it sounds like at the core of this is really different ways of relating to the land and also different worldviews of what territory means. There's territories of control and ownership as just these environments or otherwise also in a deeper way, territories of webs of living relations that are also constantly being remade. So it's important to kind of unravel the complexities of how people understand the concept of territory. And I guess this leads me to ask this question of what would this way of looking at territories as living territories mean in terms of rethinking justice and reparations beyond inclusivity and multicultural politics going forward? Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a complex thing. 
I will try to to express my <laughs> to express myself in the most convenient way. Uh, essentially, there was something that happened in Colombia because we have this armed conflict, and therefore the state has developed many different legal tools to try to address the legacies of war. So at some point, the state decided to design this particular law to address the concerns of victims. So they designed this, I will say like beautiful if you want, or this very uh, complete law to redress the damage experienced by the thousands or millions of victims in Colombia. But indigenous peoples are pro-Colombian organizations say like, okay, it's important the state undertakes these steps, but that's not enough because the thing you are conceptualizing, victimhood or damage, is not taking into consideration our experiences of war, our experiences of harm. And they managed to design or create this law that recognized that alongside humans and alongside human ways of being, the territory itself was a victim of war. So they say our territories have also experienced the damage of war, therefore they should be considered victims. That means that they should be also be granted the rights to justice, to reparation. The thing is like that was a very important step um, for the state, for institutions, and um, for the uh, transitional legal system. That was important because that brought into discussion the idea that the environment and nature was also like suffering or was also a victim of war. So that arose awareness about, about the many ecological legacies of war. And that's, uh, that's, that's very important. But again, was not enough for indigenous peoples. Because when we talk about damage to the territory in terms of environmental concepts, we are framing nature and the environment with modern concepts or with these ideas that nature is something aside from humans, uh, the nature is this domain, that is independent from the will of human beings. And they are telling us and they are practicing their lives in which like, there's no this kind of clear boundary between people and territories. So when they say territories are victim, they were not just referring to the environment, to what we understand as nature, but they are also addressing the concerns of spirits, the concerns of human and with intentional actions, the concerns of the spiritual beings that live in rocks, the concern of rivers who are also like in some cases are considered also uh, keen. So, so it was most, oh, the, the idea of territorial sabitimi went beyond the idea of nature. And, and that pushes legal, the legal system framework to think about reparation and justice in ways that take into consideration the well-being of the natural world for things other than what the natural world represents to people. So territory and the environment are worth of protection for what they are, because they have an intrinsic value and not just for what they represent to people. And this is like the kind of discussion or concept that indigenous peoples have brought. The thing is like the legal system is still trying to deal with this concept or complex concepts because in Western, Legal tradition, just recently we have made, we have made room for 
rise to other than people. So we have this a big movements about a rise of nature in Latin America, but also in New Zealand. So just recently, like the legal system started to expand their own uh, biases or their own concepts to make room to uh, non-humans and to redress the damage of these non-humans in ways that are consistent with the experiences of indigenous peoples, for instance. So essentially, like uh, indigenous peoples with uh, those things, they are pushing the boundaries of some of our concepts, the concepts that lay the foundations of, of, of the human rights movement, for instance, or of the legal apparatus or the transitional justice systems around the world. So the thing is like human rights is important. It's a very important topic. It's the language of human rights is very, it's still very important to indigenous people because that helped them to gain attention to the situation, but also to become important actors in the political arena. But the thing is like they are telling us like the human rights framework is not enough because what has been hindered is not only human ways of being, but also other kinds of beings. And the thing is that the human rights framework is still like a too human-centric, like because the human rights framework presumes this kind of cut between humans and the material environments. But also because like the modern way of conceptualizing the legal subject always revolves around human beings and about individuals, okay? Like the only authorized subject of law is the autonomous free individual. But again, we are not dealing about individual beings, but beings or people, persons who are made of relations, of deep relations with the environment, with the natural world, with the beings that live in these territories, including palm trees, ants, rivers, forests, etc., etc. So essentially it's like um, the concepts the institutions created to deal with the damage of war should be transformed in order to address the concerns of victimized communities, but also in order to redress the legacies of, of war. And, and that also compels us to reconsider things as damage, as self, what is an individual self, damage, and obviously reparation. How can you repair those relations that have been broken? How can you repair a spirit that uh, has gotten mad because of what happened in the forest? So uh, there are many things to which like the legal apparatus, the multicultural state is not, will be not good enough to deal with because many of these concepts, concepts against like exceeds uh, institutions and practices within the modern multicultural state. Right. So in order to really envision reparations in a more holistic manner, people have to first better understand the depths of the harms that have been inflicted that goes much farther and beyond the human realm. And of course, the present day dynamics and politics of every living territory around the globe is unique. In terms of Bajo Atrato, you say that this land is imprescriptible, it cannot be taken away, inalienable, it cannot be transferred, and non-seizable, it cannot be sold to repay creditors, which are three key features that reinforce collective forms of use, enable its production and management, and guarantee intergenerational permanency, end quote. 
With this recognition in mind, what inspirations can people in other parts of the world take from the alternative models of society of the communities of Bajo Atrato? One of the important things to bear in mind here is that when people are talking about the harm to spirits, to rocks, to rivers, sometimes the best multiculturalism or a multicultural state, the best it can do is to consider these things as cultural beliefs. Meaning that, okay, so the state knows that spirits are not real, so what we have to do is to try to protect the worldviews of these peoples, yeah? the, cultural, the culture of these peoples. And what the state uh, usually does, and try to like oversimplifying, the thing is like, okay, we have this kind of damage uh, to the territory, but that damage can just be or damage to the environment in the sense that it's something that you can assess, that you have like really measure and know because there are these environmental consequences, or there's damage to worldviews or to culture. So the state tried to protect the people who embody these cultures, these worldviews, but the state will never take seriously the idea that spirits have indeed been harmed, okay? So the thing is like, from my own perspective, the way I understand is the multicultural state try to make room for the respect of these peoples, but it does, uh, doesn't take seriously into consideration the ways indigenous peoples conceptualize life, conceptualize territory, conceptualize land, and conceptualize justice. So when people are talking about the concerns of spirits, they are inviting us to reconceptualize our own categories, our own modern concepts. Because in modernity, we have no room to the spiritual world, or the spiritual world is something that is just like something that belongs only to the religious sphere, or in the best cases to like worldviews. But the thing is like, what a state can do, or even in a case of, of, of transitional justice, which is the, 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 the context in which I move, is like, we should take seriously those philosophies and those concepts to call into question our own premises, the very modern premises, but also to see how biased are the premises of the modern legal apparatus or, or the scientific method, if you want. Because at the end of the day, like again, the legal apparatus is culturally biased because, for instance, it relies on this idea, of, on this liberal idea of the individual or the free individual, which is not necessarily the case among many indigenous peoples. So the thing is like what we should like learn from from this context in Bajo Trato, from what's happening in terms of war and, and in terms of, of the advocacy of indigenous peoples bringing into attention what's happening with the territories is that we need to rethink justice, to reconsider what reparation might be, but also to enlarge or create new means to repair what is broken. And the thing, one important thing here is that, for instance, the current transitional justice system in Colombia is trying to deal with those local experiences of damage, of harm, but also to respond to international standards. So we have this international legislation about war, 
But that international legislation was created in Europe in another context, in other years, and another period, sorry, and that necessarily or that necessarily have all the tools to deal with experiences that are happening in countries like this. So essentially it's like if we learn from what's going on now in Colombia, in this region, we can set the standards of what can be done in other transitional justice systems, what can be done in other countries in order to take seriously the experiences of indigenous peoples. Because the first tenet of transitional justice is to put the concerns of victims at the center. But if the experiences of victims, if you wrap those experiences in terms of environment or cultural beliefs, you are not being really respectful of the concerns of victims that you can uh, end up uh, creating other kind of injustice or of, of revictimization of these communities. So essentially it's like we are on the verge of creating something important about justice, reparation, and the redress of damage. And this is like an opportunity we should like take seriously in order to uh, learn from this and, and trying to design better models in, uh, elsewhere. What has been one of the most impactful books you've read or publications you follow? Okay, I'm, perhaps I'm going to mention two, just because I'm Colombian and I think that this is an opportunity to bring into attention other kind of literature and authors. I want to mention a novel called The Vortex, which was published in 1924, but it's essentially a novel about the Amazonian Robert Boom. And it's documenting like the kind of, 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 of suffering and exploitation of indigenous peoples uh, at that time. But it's a, a beautiful, well-written novel that for me was like my first introduction to, to the forest, to tropical forests, because it's describing like the beauty of these forests, but also like the kind of dangers that, that live in, in, in this, in this, in these places. So I learn about the beauty, but also I learn also how to be cautious when you are in, in a place that assaults all your senses. So it's called The Vortex. It was recently translated by this uh, American scholar called John Charles Chastin. So yeah, there's a fairly new translation into English. And it's, it's, it's a book I recommend if you want to understand or to approach tropical forests or the Amazon in a way that conveys both the beauty and the danger of this place. The other one was, was a kind of source of inspiration for me. and was this book from uh, Hugh Ruffles called Insectopedia. And it was like uh, so well written. I, I wanted to, to write in a similar way. It's, it's just because it's, it's, it's Ruffles is bringing into our attention like uh, insects, which often are just like 
disregarded or not taken as serious actors. So yeah, I think it's, it's very important like to, 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 it was a source inspiration in that sense that made me make connections with different life forms also and how they are actors in, in themselves and how our lives are deeply intermingled with, with uh, the lives of these tiny creatures. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I think that the, I understand the expression, but I, 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 can't, I, I cannot help but think in that expression as a kind of metaphor, because at the end of the day, to stay grounded is, is to be connected to the core of who you are, but it's, it's this big component, which is the ground, which is like the solid surface of the earth, like the land. So I'm not sure I'm a creature of the ground, or only on the ground, because uh, I learned from the Bajo Atrato that to stay grounded sometimes requires not just to set your foot on land, but also like move your body on water. So in that sense, I think that one of the things that helped me to stay grounded is to listening to creeks, to the flow of water. I can like spend hours just close to a river and listening to, to the uh, water flowing. This is something that uh, helps me a lot. And essentially, when that happens, it's also because I'm walking in forests and I'm trying to uh, listen in to birds and to the other like beings of the forest. So it's walking essentially, but I'm listening, listening to forests, but also listening to, to, to water, to creeks, to rivers, to, to the flow. Mm, I love that. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Yeah, it's curious because uh, she just arrived, which is my daughter. <laughs> I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to, 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 to sound too much uh, uh, mockage, like showing too much emotion, like in an embarrassing way. But the thing that is, my daughter is a source of inspiration because she's in this age which has this constant or this perpetual sense of wonder. So she's asking about everything, but also like willing to learn about everything. So this is a moment in which, uh, oh, oh, yeah, this is like a stage in the life that helped me like this, the importance of being also, of having this sense of amazement or awe, you know, of, of, uh, uh, of trying to understand things. So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's the thing like uh, that, that all, always is pushing me to not take for granted things and to try to attune myself to, uh, to the world around us. So yeah, it's essentially the questions and there and this and there's again like this sense of wonder, this her constant sense of wonder that helps me to not take uh, things for granted and to try to understand things in, in, in a way different than we are used to understand. Hmm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Daniel's work, you can head to Daniel ruizzerna.com and we will also have more links and resources shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was an honor and pleasure to speak with you. For now what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the opportunity. I think that uh, final words of wisdom perhaps something along, along the last lines like Keep your life filled with wonder. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, 
Please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com slash support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>